on the People's Voice podcast. And as always, we got some dope guests on the show today. We have a familiar voice. We have Miss Christina Laster. Christina, how you doing? I'm good. You know, it's Friday, thank God. But I'm here and I'm uh, well, I'm healthy, not sick. And so I'm doing good. I know that's right. Ain't nobody trying to trying to mess with that Rona. Mm-hmm. <laughs> nope, not at all. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> we also have Ms. Nadine Ross. Nadine, how you doing today? I'm good. It's Nadine Escalante. I'm good. Nice to meet okay. you, ladies. Well, Christine, I've met you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So let's, yes. let's yes. get yes. started. Let's get started. Um, Nadine, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, I have been born and raised here in Kern County, Bakersfield. Um, we are a very big agricultural community, um, known for being a very racist community. Mm. Um, I am adopted. So my birth parents is an African male, my dad, and then my mother is Native American. So I come from a very, you know, big society that we like to pick on, the minorities. Um, Mm. I grew up in a white middle-class family, so I've had some experience in life that others have not had. I've grown up um, going to schools um, on the east side of Bakersfield, which is a wonderful side of Bakersfield, lots of community-oriented people, very friendly, but we have a lot of crime over here as well. And mm. so it's, it tend to be frowned on over here. Um, okay. Growing up, I didn't see the problems with police abuse. Uh, growing up, whenever I saw things like the Rodney King incident, my white mother said, oh, he brought that upon himself. It, I wasn't, I was, I was brainwashed into the reality of the world. Then when I got in my twenties, I started college, heard about the probation department, did an internship there at 23. I had no idea that we had a juvenile hall. That's mm-hmm. how sheltered I was. And then I began my career. I worked at juvenile hall for 10 years until I was assaulted in 2009 by a minor in there. And that ended my career. I Mm. got injured so severely I couldn't go back to work. And so the last 10 years, um, I've dealt with issues of depression, um, anxiety, PTSD, and um, issues with uh, retaliation from our law enforcement here in Kern County and from our county and harassment. And so I dealt with a lot of issues. And so I became a very vocal advocate for these issues within the last five years. And my voice has been heard. It's been very strong. And since I'm a part of a group called called Community Policing, where we actually meet with our Bakersfield Police Department, the chief and his administrators on a monthly basis, I was told you need to get into the education issues because Mm. that's where our crime stems from. This is where our population for prisons and juvenile hall stems from. And so my first meeting I went to was last year in October and I was shocked. I Mm -hmm. felt so ashamed of the privileged life that I have been able to give my children that I had no idea half of our children in Bakersfield do not have. And then that's when I started getting involved with my own child's high school. And this is my third baby. I have four children, 26, one turning 21 soon, 16 and 12. And that's when I started getting involved in the education movement because they go hand in hand. And it explains so much with my juvenile hall children when my kids could not read. I couldn't understand why my kids could not read. And so I was bringing into work Dr. Seuss books, my children's first grade, third grade books to teach my kids privately in juvenile hall how to read. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so I, I've just been blown away. And so now I'm full force 
Um, in January of this year, we had a tragic situation. I got very involved with talking to our current high school district very aggressively and constantly calling and staying on them because there was a lockdown situation at my daughter's high school when I was there and I was present and the school lied, the district lied to the entire city of Bakersfield saying there was not a minor on campus with a gun when in fact there was and they lied and then a week later we had a young man named Jose Flores Jr. who was stabbed to death across the street from high school at the end of the day defending his brother who was getting jumped and Three children, his brother and two friends, um, saw the knife, tried to break up the fight, and he was cut. He was stabbed in the abdomen and in the neck, in the jugular, and he bled to death in like five minutes. It was recorded. Over 300 children had seen this. There had been no response from our school district. So then that's when I decided as a mother, no, I'm going full force with this. We have to change. This is no longer okay. We have to start addressing the issues in our schools with the suspensions and expulsions, the discrimination, the harassment, all the dirty laundry nobody wants to discuss. I'm discussing it. I'm putting it out there loudly and boldly because it is time. Yes, yes. Thank you. Thank you so much, Nadine. Thank you for your advocacy and for your voice and for your service to our communities and in the criminal justice system. Um, You know, I I don't think we have enough conversation or really give enough, shed enough light on the obstacles that you guys face in these careers. And, you know, just as as an FYI to our to our audience, the conversation that we're having today is around racial tensions within the black and brown communities between our communities and law enforcement, um, the school to prison pipeline and how that affects our young people, how that ultimately affects their education, their livelihoods, their development, um, their their social, everything. So, and this is this is a, a very important topic, a conversation. Christina brought it to me the other day and she really wants to have this conversation. And that's why we're having it now. And it's a conversation that we need to have more regularly because it's affecting our community so much. So I want to I want to yeah. go to Christina. Christina, I want to hear your story and your experience with with being incarcerated um, at a young age. Okay, so everybody that doesn't know me, uh, I am Christina Laster. I'm a civil rights activist and humanitarian. Um, I work specifically and focused on what is happening with our black children um, and just looking at the historical, generational, and perpetual cycles that trap our children into failure, um, how that applies to Uh, you know, the next generation and future generations. And so that's what I do. That's what I live, breathe. Christina, I wasn't wasn't trying to be rude. You know, it's like you worldwide famous for your advocacy. So I wasn't even trying to to say we don't need to skip the introduction. Tell tell us about everything that you do. Okay. Yeah. So we good on that uh, because we, me and you have these conversations and, and be in the spaces together. So, you know, we know who we are, but, you know, just for those that don't know, and this is a part of Christina Laster that, you know, really a lot of people will don't know about. And so, you know, life and in effect, I'm giving you this story, but it needs to be said and it needs to be talked about. And so if I got to be the one to put myself out there, I'm willing to do that because I'm very triggered. And, and, and I think that's what I, I, I caught. And I said, Tanisha, you know, I am so triggered by these little girls that's getting locked up. Okay. And you know, the six year olds, 
the 11 year old supposedly mistaken identity. And so I've got to triangulate my situation in here and I can no longer be silent. So while I'm opening this can of worms, this Pandora box, I need people to really be understanding that, uh, you know, this is a space where I'm not expecting no judgment and condemnation. I'm expecting feet on the ground to move into action. Um, so, you know, I'm going to share quick, my story. Real quick, what, what happened with the, the case of the 11 11-year-old girl in mistaken identity. So in DeKalb County, you know, the police came to the home of this 11-year-old girl and basically said that they were told she had did a, 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 a burglary or something to that effect, um, mm-hmm. some kind of stol- stolen property. And went off of whatever statement they claim they had. And the mom, they handcuffed her, put her in the back of the police car. And the mom showed the police her video cameras that she has around her house. And that it could not have been her daughter because the video shows that her daughter entered the house at a certain time and did not leave. Okay. Mm. They handcuffed and arrested the child anyway. And when the child was in the back of the police car, she told the police that she was only 11 years old and they let her go because they were looking for a 16 year old black girl anyway. (laughs) And so that, that triggered me. Right. Mm-hmm. Because you already handcuffed her. You already came in. This is a traumatic experience for this child. She is in her mind. What is she thinking? She's under arrest, right? Um, right. She's about to go to jail, 11 years old, away from her mom, not understanding what that experience is going to look like. What did I do wrong? I didn't even do anything. Can't help myself. And so this is the same outcry that I heard the six-year-old basically screaming and crying, please don't arrest me. You know, am I under arrest? What's going on here? Because what could possibly be going through our children's minds at that very moment when they're handcuffed with the police in the car, you know, right. And so they're afraid and I can understand intimately. So, you know, that's what really got me to say, you know, we have to talk about this. Mm-hmm. We have to. Mm-hmm. So, what, so, so what uh, tell, go ahead and tell your story about what happened to you. Okay. Well, so I, I want to talk about this. Sorry. Sorry. So, okay. So I want to say that, you know, at, at 15, I shared this before I became a teenage mother and my parents emancipated me. I didn't know what that was going to look like. I basically became a ward of the court, had a baby and we was just on our own, you know? Um, and so that was my experience. 15, 16, 17, I graduated, went to college, all that good stuff. Um, and, and, and let me just say this. You could be a straight A student and still have these experiences because that was me. So I don't want parents to think, oh, it has anything to do with the grades or anything like that. Because I was a straight A student, got into a real good university, and this is still my story. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so at 18... I had was with my boyfriend and my cousin. I was pregnant with my second daughter, uh, about six months pregnant. Um, they went to the store. I stayed in the car. Next thing I know, I see police cars coming from all over, and they descend upon my vehicle. Okay, and I'm thinking, whoa, somebody did something. I'm not knowing what it is because I'm sitting in the car. And my cousin runs up to the car and they tell all of us to, 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 um, they tell me to get out for one, put my hands up. Um, my cousin didn't get in the car, so they got, had him as he was standing outside the car and then arrested my boyfriend at the time. So we all, we all were arrested, um, taken to, you know, be interrogated. I'm sitting here telling them I have no idea why I'm under arrest. 
my cousin and my boyfriend at the time also told them she has nothing to do with it, don't know nothing, but they didn't care. Okay. And so the cops put me in the papers. (laughs) To do with what? They they hadn't even told you? They hadn't even told me. They hadn't even told me what happened. So I was put into a paper suit. Okay. Arrested. Put into a paper suit. Six months pregnant, mind you. My stomach is big at this point. Um, And put into an interrogation room. I'm cold. I'm asking questions. What did I do? Um, Please, somebody let me know. They telling me we gonna be in here to talk to you in a minute. You just need to wait, wait, wait. Three hours later, you know, they come in and start asking me all these questions about my life, about, you know, what school I went to and how did I get into that college, um, about my cousin, about my boyfriend. And I said, look, I need to know what I'm being charged with. I need to understand why you guys are holding me in this interrogation room. And, and they just continue to press in on their questions, right? Without telling me anything else and to uh, um, try to um, attack my life, like how dare you go to uh, that private Catholic university? You don't deserve to go there. And I keep asking them why? What did I do? And so finally it came to the point where because they didn't tell me what I did, I finally said, well, what is it that y'all want me to say I did? How about that? Because Mm. I am pregnant. I'm thirsty. I'm hungry. I'm in a paper suit in a cold room. Nobody has told me what I've done. Nobody has indicated to me anything except for for me to uh, go ahead and run through my night and what happened. And I keep telling you guys, I took my cousin and my boyfriend to the store and says that'll seem like it's what y'all want to hear I'm, I'm asking you what you want me to say mm, right right and um, I'm that's it. no no Miranda right no food water they didn't consider that you were pregnant um, they didn't tell you what your charges were when you guys were put in the car and no Miranda right Oh, my God. You oh, know what? It's reminding me of the Central Park Five. Like, I'm literally getting uh-huh. flashbacks yeah. of Ava DuVernay's yeah. when they see us. You know, mm-hmm. and it's, it's right. all too common. It's all too common, and it's, it's ridiculous, and it's unfair, it's unjust, and it's traumatic. Because, Christina, years later, you I know that you vividly see this in your mind and it's, oh. it's, pretty, it's imprinted because of, of these experiences and, you know, just. It, it is film. so traumatizing that it has impacted my life in such a way that people would that haven't been through that experience would never understand. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. to go further, I ended up getting booked and charged And when I finally got to a place called Las Colinas, because that's where they took me, which was about 10 hours later. Now, mind you, I'm pregnant. I ain't had no food. I'm in a paper suit. It's cold. Um, I had water on occasion. You know, my baby is kicking. I'm sitting here stressed out. I couldn't call nobody. Okay. Um, By the time I got booked into Las Colinas, I found out I got a murder charge. Murder? I haven't even touched anybody. How is it that you guys are charging me with a 187 and I ain't putting my hands on nobody? I mean, I'm I'm at that point scared for my life because Mm -hmm. you're telling me I'm never leaving this place, right? Um, And I... You know, so many scenes in my life flashed through my eyes at that point when they told me you'd be in charge with a 187. I'm sitting here asking questions. Wait, why? What? Um, nobody would answer it. They're just like, ma'am, stand up there, put, you know, fingerprint, take your picture, go sit in that cell, that holding cell. 
And so it wasn't until I got into the holding cell that the inmates that were inside of that cell explained the whole process to me. Like, here's what's going to happen to you, right? Um, And that even made me more fearful because they're like, you have a 187, like, you cannot... um, do anything you can't bail out you can't do nothing because I was gonna call my parents like you guys bail me out but I was being held with no bail on a murder charge in a situation when I didn't even know what happened I'm sitting in the car okay and so you could only imagine at 18 even how do you process that Right. How do you process you got one kid at home and you pregnant with your second child and now you in jail for a murder and you ain't touch nobody. And you pregnant as hell. You six months pregnant. Who did you murder and how? Like they didn't you know they, didn't thank you. You. <laughs> they knew I was pregnant because they had to give me a dress, right? right. So most of the inmates <laughs> Most and I'm of the laughing inmates, because it's ridiculous. You know, I'm sorry. I'm not laughing at the situation, it, but it's it, like... You know, for real, though. I mean, but what you see is what any person with eyes could see. The right. girl is has no weapons, okay? We didn't find her with any. She had no blood on her, okay? She's sitting there. As a matter of fact, she was more startled that we got her, okay? And, and, and she's six months pregnant, so... She didn't kill anybody. And so um, for when I finally got to court, um, I, you know, the story started to unravel because, of course, the, the, the public defender came and talked to me and said, here's what happened. They beat up this guy who was a child molester in the community, okay, mm-hmm. a known child molester. They beat him up an inch away from his death. He in the hospital clinging to his life. And because um, you were were there with them, not that you were at the scene of the crime, but you were there with your cousin yeah. in the state of California, you get the same charges as everyone else. I said, but I didn't even see the person get beat up. Mm-hmm. Where did they beat him up at? Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. and so when I went to go um, to the to see the judge, the first the first three days later, you go see a judge, whatever. He he said, "I'm letting her go because she obviously has nothing to do with this." And you guys could check the court transcripts. This says this. He's like, um, I, "She obviously had nothing to do with any of the fight or anything like that." I mean, if you look at her, she's pregnant. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so um, they let me go. Finally, somebody, <laughs> somebody has some sense and I'm at the mercy of this <laughs> judge. <laughs> right. And he's like, I'm looking at her history. I'm looking at her background. I'm looking at the fact that she just got caught up in something she ain't had nothing to do with. And so he let me go on my own recognizance and I had to come back to court. And that was so traumatizing. Like by the time I got home, I saw the world different. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. I, I didn't want to talk to nobody. Um, mind you, I ain't giving nobody no right. I don't care what you got to go get toilet tissue. Hey, you're going to have to walk. Christina ain't giving out no rights, okay? Because right. ain't nobody getting in my car at that point. <laughs> um, it just shook my whole life, my my whole world. So yeah. my dad, you know, he, he hired me an attorney. And then the, the, the interesting times just began after that when I had to go to court. So, so, so basically... Let's mm-hmm. let's dig in because I want to I want to dig into I want to there's so many layers to this conversation, you know, and I, I want to I want to dig into those layers because I think we have many conversations about the criminalization of black boys and we don't have enough converse, conversations around the criminalization of black girls, you know, and we mm-hmm. have we have um 
we have documented cases as with you and with the book Push Out. And, you know, I've worked with at-risk populations, specifically young girls, um, you know, in juvenile detention centers. And so we have documented cases and we have narratives, but we don't have these conversations enough. So we're talking about the criminalization of black girls and black women. We're talking about an unjust um, justice system. You know, we're talking about we're talking about push out in schools that that um, we Nadine started talking about earlier. So where do we where do we start? Like what Nadine? Let me well, let me I go to you. Mm-hmm. Was that you, Nadine? Uh, yeah, I'm right here. Okay, so so just what what I guess trends did you see amongst the, the youth that you interacted with in the in in your career in um working in law enforcement and juvenile facilities um very high rates of hispanic and black very mm-hmm. very high rate our community is made up of primarily like it's 70 percent latino so that's why we have a very big population over here. But in Juvenile Hall, it was almost a fair balance between the Black kids and the Hispanic kids. And typically, our Black kids were in our high security unit, which was the 200s, referred to as the 200s. Mm-hmm. Um, they typically always stayed over there first before they ever got you know, trickled down to the lower security units compared to our Latino kids. Um, Our girls always, there's only one unit for our females. So the girls were always together. Um, And so they didn't have to experience that. And with our girls, we had more Latino girls arrested than than black girls. But I think that's because our population is so different between the two. But uh, most of the time, our black girls were treated very, very differently because they were treated as if they were more aggressive. They were treated as if you need to watch them a little bit more because she's more defiant. She's more aggressive. She's more mouthy. Instead of seeing, you know, that this girl has a lot of strength, leadership, we, we saw them in a negative view. Or at mm-hmm. least I was told in, in my training years, as I was coming up in my job, I was told this. And as I got to see, no, this isn't the truth. Once we sit down and we start talking to our kids, we actually get to know our kids. Right. And so I, I just took a very different perspective after about two years there when I got my own wings and I could fly a little bit solo sometimes when I was running my own unit mm-hmm. that I I never called my kids by their last names like all staff always did. I always called my kids by their first names. And they mm-hmm. would say, why do you do that, Mrs. Escalante? And I said, because does your mom call you by your last name? No. Okay, then. I want you to be treated the way that you get treated by your parents. I want to give you that respect because that's what you deserve. And so my kids were treated quite differently in my unit because I, I remembered these children, children, not criminals, children belong to somebody. I don't care if they're in here for stealing beer or if they're in here for murder. They are somebody's child. I had mm-hmm. one boy um, that was in there um, when he was 14 for 10 days juvenile hall. So we usually kick those ones out. They're called in and out. We book them and we release them. And mm-hmm. so he was the in and out 14 years old. When he was 17, he was brought back to us because he was charged with a murder. Like you, Christina, wrong place, wrong Mm -hmm. time. And it was the first uh, shooting at our Valley Plaza Mall. It was another male who actually did the shooting. And he knew what he was doing when he got there. That was his full intention. He was 22, um, recently out of the CYA program. And he went to the plaza. And this gentleman that I know went with them unknowingly 
Another friend said, hey, we're going to the mall. You want to go look for girls? Yeah, sure. So he went, not knowing what was going down. So mm-hmm. he got arrested for the wrong place, wrong time. When his grandmother came in to visit him, his grandmother was just crying. And she said, I don't even know why he's here. Yeah. I yeah. It devastated me having to tell this frail 70-year-old woman walking with a cane. He's in here for murder. And she almost broke down. I had to catch her. I hugged her. And she said, he's my baby. He's been raised by her. He was raised in the project. You know, he's been a good kid. He just doesn't live in a good area. And she said, can you take care of my baby? And I said, yes, I will. And I stayed on that one. I told them, you never come back here. You aren't supposed to be here. You know better. And he, unfortunately, because of the corrupt system that we have, he was right. treated like the rest of them. And he got seven years in the Y. The other wow. ones got a little bit longer, but he got seven years. To this day, so, this boy has not even gotten a ticket. Not one ticket. Whenever I talk to him, amen. whenever I see him, he says, because of you, Ms. Escalante, staying on me, he, was, he moved out of town. He goes to college. He's a truck driver. No kids. He is focused and committed to living a good life, breaking the cycle. And, and it's, it's right. It's, it just takes somebody and leaving the child. Yeah. I wanted to I want to say something real quick, though, about and I don't want to miss that moment about how she said that, you know, when you're black, um, you get put in the maximum security. That is actual and factual. And so, yeah. what you know, because I had to go back to court um, and they did what was called a 90 day observation. They, they, they sentenced me to a 90 day observation. OK, um, and I'm thinking a 90 day observation. What is that? You know, um, and so a 90 day observation is. Basically, they want to know if you a criminal or not, because they can't they can't figure out where to place you at. And I was told that, um, you know, you're the smartest person in this bunch. So were you the mastermind of of this uh, whole thing? I said, wait a minute. Hold up. What is this pinky in the brain? I didn't, you know, um, mastermind anything. I'm telling you guys the truth. They told you guys the truth, but you're still trying to find a way to peg this on me. So now you created a a story. The cops created a story. Well, she's the mastermind because she's the smartest out of the bunch and has the ability to to tell people to go and come and do what they do. I said, no, that's not me. You guys are creating a picture of me that's not even true and so when I went when I had to go turn myself in after I was free for six months to do a 90-day observation I had to go back to the same jail trauma that I um, came out of for the three days and they put me immediately in maximum security with murderers okay and I'm sitting here like Wait a minute, hold up. Is this the this is the highest level security housing that you guys have where people are locked down 24 23 out of the 24 hours a day. And I'm in here with women that probably either are are waiting to go to prison because that's where they house them at. Um have committed uh heinous crimes supposedly, right? Um and or just have these big charges. And so I noticed that 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 housing unit was filled with black women of all ages, all ages. And they saw me and they like, you a baby. What you doing here? You know, and so I've got to know these women as I was waiting for um, for the 90 day observation is what I was supposed to be sent to Central Institution for Women, which is a prison. Um, I, I sat there at the jail waiting to be transferred to prison to start my 90 day observation. And as I got to know these women, I, I was like, wait, you shouldn't be here. You should be getting mental health because you got raped when you were 10 by your stepfather and got pregnant by him. What are you doing here? Right. You shouldn't be here because you uh, defended yourself 
because your husband almost beat you to death. Right. What are you doing here? Mm-hmm. Um, and it was those kinds of stories that I was just like, wow, is this where we place people like us that have these kind of traumatic uh, events in our lives and then maximum security? And in that area of maximum security, the seat, the, the correctional officers treat you like crap. They yeah. treat you like crap. You can't even get a roll of toilet tissue. OK. And so I started noticing that every day it was like a meditation call and they had these little cups of syrup looking juice. Right. And the majority of the women would just get up and go get that cup of juice. And finally, I said, what y'all drinking? They was like, we're drinking. Yeah, they were like, we're drinking uh, our psychiatric medication. I said, well, were you taking psychiatric medication before you got here? And they said, no, everybody that comes to maximum security, um, for the most part, will opt to go see the psych. He'll prescribe the medicine to you. And what it happens is, is it helps you sleep during through, throughout the whole day. So you could just sleep your day away. Let, and that's let what me, they were doing. Let, let's let's pause here for a minute because again, this this is it's so many things that we need to discuss. I think, oh my goodness, um, because this is like many conversations, we're probably gonna need a part two. Um, mm-hmm. The first thing that you know, kind of going back to um, one of Nadine's points is when I was when I was doing the juvenile justice work. You know, it's it's rewarding when you have that one person, that one quote unquote success case, because every other person that you see returns to a facility or return as, you know, a case file breaks your heart because you feel like as an advocate or as a mentor, you failed. And so, you know, I had to at one point have a conversation with myself that if you were able to help at least one of your clients, then you were a success, you know. Um, and so that's something that, I want to highlight, but also going back to the maximum security piece and Christina, when you said that they tried to paint this picture of you, like when you think about, when you think about a couple of things, when you think about today's school system and how yeah. they they portray black people, you know, in media, everywhere, they try to paint these pictures of us to the point where we, we've convinced ourselves that we're these people, right? And right. so we, you know, we, we take on those characteristics or we, you know, we wear those masks that they've given us and we act accordingly. And that's what they've done with prison. That's what they've done in schools. And that's how, you know, the correlation between the school to prison pipeline. And then, um, you know, when they when they put you in this maximum security, it took me back to, again, slavery. When they talk Mm -hmm. when they talk about how they used to. um, What is it? Bug breaking. You know, yeah. when they when they will break our men, break our men down, emasculate our men, you know, break their spirits so much to the point where they would conform and they would be obedient. You know, and so that's what all these conversations like I just had to get those thoughts out because it's just like, damn, the more things like we're in whole 2020, but we're still living, you know, in the times of 400 plus years ago. You know, and so just thinking about that stuff about just overall how this country hates black and brown people and they treat us less than they don't treat us like people. They treat us like they treat us like animals, you know, and this is apparent in the school system and it's apparent in the criminal justice system. Right. And so that's why anytime I'm sitting in a meeting with a parent that her their their child, especially the girls, have been pegged as disruptive, disobedient. I'm listening for these key words, right? Because I know what key words they use in prison terminology. I know what key words they use in police reports, right? And I'm like, well, I need you to identify what you mean by that word. And what is your rubric? Where where is your metric for that word? Because you can't just throw words out like disruptive. What do you mean disruptive? What do you mean defiant? What do you mean disobedient? 
right? Mm-hmm. And so th- I attack those narratives because I understand that it's a process of criminalization. It's mm-hmm. a narrative that people are trying to create to keep a, a child bound into a story that is their story, but not necessarily that child's story because it wasn't my story and they was trying to make it my story, right? right. And they did or everything that they could. Exactly. And mm-hmm. when they couldn't, and see, this is where biases and things come in because when they couldn't really identify me in any of those categories, because like I said, I was a straight A student. I was going to a un- private university that they kids couldn't even get into. Right. And I was working, had a job, but I was, you know, you know, they know they had to know by looking at my records that I was an emancipated youth at some point. And they tried to fit me in this box, but they couldn't. And I saw um, the confusion in a lot of their faces of, wait, we can't really place this one. So instead of us trying to uh, trying to get to know the truth about her and maybe even believe that she's telling the truth, we're going to go ahead and say she was the master master. She's the master criminal. Watch her because she's smart and she's a mastermind. I'm like, wait. This is ridiculous. You know, mm-hmm. I'm sitting here telling you guys this fighting, literally fighting for my freedom. Okay. And so, you know, I'm, I'm going to say that the person <laughs> that invested in me, it, and this is going to be a weird twist to this story. When I got to prison for my 90 day observation, the first person they could put me in contact with was one of Charlie Manson's girls, Linda. Oh, wow. Okay, Linda at that time had, you know, she was a really uh, strong in her faith. And so I spent time with Linda, talking to Linda, because that's who they put me to talk to every day when they was doing the evaluation. And she was really the person that impacted me the most. Um, when I met her, I didn't know who she was. And then she started talking about how she was with, you know, Charlie Manson and the girls, they committed the crimes and things like that. Um, and how her life has been impacted and how she turned that around, you know, and she started talking about God and I, and I instantly, um, she told me this doesn't have to be your story. Mm-hmm. This doesn't, this isn't you. This isn't who you are. Don't let this place define you. And so that's the person that poured into me a level of hope and faith and understanding that I'm not about to be trapped here because in my thought process, I was just going to succumb to everything that, um, you know, I, I was told to do and everything around me, but I knew that that wasn't me. So why should I, but if I had to live and survive and, and be ordered to get along in there, I was going to have to do that. But she told me, this is not you. You're different from other people. I can tell you that right away, Christina. And she said, don't succumb this is not your home. Don't make this your home. Don't look at it as your home. Every day when you wake up, think about where you are supposed to be, where you should be. And so that's the person that poured into me a level of hope. Uh, and, I, and I'm shocked that I even, you know, now that I think back, like, wait, I was over there with Charlie Manson's daughter, one of his, you know, girls. And, um, you know, it's just the, the overall experience of what you see every day, of what you experience every day, of how you get treated, how you t- get talked to. Um, I cannot imagine an 11-year-old, a 6-year-old, right, having to deal with that kind of lifestyle and they come home. Okay. Nobody is going to walk away from that and be okay. Especially not a developing child. The frontal lobe don't even fully develop for women until 21. And if we're men for 25. And so you take the, and and that's why I was so triggered seeing these kids because you take that, even that first contact with supposed law and order a, that li- that lives within their entire life and makes them think something I, something wrong with me, you know. Mm-hmm. I did mm-hmm. something bad, and and now do I gotta live up to this? And if nobody comes in and tells them you didn't do anything wrong, honey, you are just a, caught up in a, a system that wants you to fail. Then right. then where are they headed? You know, right? Where are they headed? 
so so let me ask y'all this how are how are you all taking these life experiences this trauma these messages these key messages that have uplifted you and lifted you through difficult times how are y'all using those experiences to support youth who are obviously going through the same you know issues and and encountering the same obstacles you know, basically, I'm going to be honest with you, Tanisha. This is something that I have never talked about, you know, um, mm-hmm. to people. I did come home from the 90-day observation, um, you know, after a period of time, you know, going to court back and forth like that. They did, you know, basically determine, no, she not prison material, Um and uh, Nadine sent me a message and saying her phone disconnected, so she should be trying to call back. And so, you know, I walked away from that seeing the experiences from the inside. I went straight back to work. I was working for public school um, with little kids. I went straight back to college. It wasn't like, you know, I got kicked out or anything. But I saw the world a little bit different as unjust. Mm -hmm. And so my whole thing was, well, then how do I bring justice one person at a time, one family at a time, one community at a time? You know, because this is a beast when we talk about what is happening to our children from the time they enter into that school system, you might as well count out a number of them for the prison system. Right, right, right. And that's what people don't understand, that they have already, you know, it's like, what, y'all meet y'all quota this year? Yeah. You know? (laughs) And so, um, and, 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 and trust me, the criminal justice system has a quota. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and just if, even if I could just, you know, talk about how plea bargains happen, it's unjust. You know, right. uh, it's a, it's a, you do this favor for me amongst the lawyers and I'm going to give you this one. Right. 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 Even yeah. if I could just talk about that, um, how plea bargains are thrown at our community, you know, like here, take this flea bargain. Is it really yeah. a bargain? Well, absolutely is it really not. a bargain? Absolutely right. not. Because everybody's trying to, you know, it's 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 a it's a machine. You know, it's like ship them in and ship them out. You know, and so that's how that's how so many of us get caught up because we're unfamiliar with the inner workings of the legal system, and so we take what sounds good, especially under pressure. You know. Um, it just it just reminds me of, you know, Khalif Browder, you know, and so many other black kids that, you know, have cases that are well known that ultimately have become victims of the system. You know, and it's because we don't know any better. We've been, you know, again, criminalized. We've been made to believe that we're criminals, you know, and through, through so many systems. And so, no, you know, we don't know. And we take whatever we can get to get back to our family sooner rather than later. So yeah, it's, it's a shame. And, um, you know, I, I don't, I don't understand that experience cause I haven't had to go through it. I've had interactions with ra- racist interactions with police, but I just thank God that I haven't had to go to you I'm know, prison because I'm not built for it. You know, I'm a, I'm right. a big girl, and, but I'm not built for it. I'm a big, I'm a big punk. <laughs> so, right. You know, yeah. and, and, and a lot of people don't even understand. Welcome back. Maybe you know, and this is one thing that I, I gotta say this. It's not just the the fact that they locking up our youth. And I was 18, that's still considered a teenager, even though you're an adult, right? It's not the fact that they locking up our young youth and young uh, children or, or young adults. It's what they do in the inside. So like I was talking about that medication run, right? Mm-hmm. When I when I came back and I started really researching, what is this that everybody's drinking 
And I found out it's called Seroquel, okay, a, a hefty dose of Seroquel syrup. I also felt, started looking at the juvenile system and the fact that they give the the juveniles 80 milligrams of Seroquel syrup. 80 milligrams is the highest dose you can be given as an adult, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so in a sense, what that does is it, it lobotomizes them and it sterilizes them. And so if you can think about that level of evil, right, of, of them just wanting to give the kids something to make them sleep all day, the adults something to want to make them sleep all day, but nobody knew it was going to mess your brain at and a developing brain and a developing body to the point to where you won't even be able to reproduce. And Nadine right. could talk about that. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I, I, was, I, I used to be frustrated with working again at the at, with the young girls and every day I would be there and they had to take their meds. And I'm like, you know, there can't be something wrong mentally, spiritually, emotionally wrong with these girls to where they have to take meds every day. But then you realize it's an industry. And that's why I get frustrated with, you know, in the school system. Everybody, you 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 see a young person, a young parent or a parent these days, and now they're saying, oh, my child has ADHD. They have this, they have that. No, I don't believe it. They just found the reason to diagnose your child with something so they can give them medicine right. to keep an industry going. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't mess with that. You know, and so it's the same thing with, you know, detention centers and prisons to over-medicate people to make them, like you said, Christina, sterile and out of their mind and all kind of stuff so that they're no longer functional. And it's not cool. And I don't mess with it. Mm-mm. Y'all see, I just might just amped up no. with that. <laughs> right. It's criminal. And I saw it firsthand and I know they being saw it firsthand. So I'm going to let her speak on that medication situation from the juvenile perspective. Yes. Yeah, we got we got to close out in a minute, y'all. Okay. Well, just briefly, when I worked at Juvenile Hall, and and this was about 20 years, about 15, 20 years ago, a lot of things have are starting to change now. We used to give, the nurse would give our kids their meds at seven o'clock. Mm-hmm. And so when our kids would take their meds, they will come back to their room and they would have free time at seven. So they took their meds at six. They would usually be asleep by 7.15. They said it made them too sleepy. They couldn't even come out for free time. I would find mm. kids just falling asleep on the top of their beds when they weren't supposed to do that. But I didn't punish them because I knew they had no control because of the medication. And I mm. didn't understand the medication until years later when I took that medication. And one thing also with that Seroquel, there is a very high known rate of suicide on that medication. Mm. Yes, Mm. people, there's always the fine print, but they are finding there's a lot more people committing suicide with when they are on Seroquel. It, It does something to the brain. That tells you, you know, you want to commit suicide. I know when that had happened to me in my life, when I had tried to commit suicide, I was on Seroquel. I said, I will never take that medication. I will never take anything close to that medication or in its family because it scared the hell out of me. Now, so, quick question. You know, is yes. it is it addictive? Is it numbing? Like, what what is it? Everything is addictive. Every prescription can be addictive. But what it does, it's just a relaxer. It just Mm -hmm. totally Mm -hmm. relaxes everything. And it just makes you, the mind, just shut down and sleepy. Mm -hmm. And then you sleep. And you sleep for a good six hours. Day. Straight. Yeah. No sleep during the whole day. Yeah. And so 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 can there be a connection to drug use in our youth? Like if they are incarcerated and they come out and so now it's like I need something to cope with the day. And so now, you know, it's marijuana, it's lean, it's, you know, whatever they can get pills. Yes. Whatever they can get. They have to be numb. Yeah. They they want to be numb. Pills from other people, too. Right. So Yeah. And it is. They need to feel that feeling of numbness. They need to feel I need to sleep at night like I did when I was inside juvenile hall 
So then they start asking other people, hey, do you have Seroquel? Do you have, well, no, but I have something like it. And they don't know what they're taking and they don't know what the response is going to be like. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, unfortunately, like yesterday, we had a child overdose by taking pills. Pills she was not prescribed, prescribed. She had no idea what they were. And that baby overdosed at school. Wow. But yeah. but the real mm-hmm. culprit is why is this happening to our kids and what are right. we gonna yeah. do about it, right? Well let's, because, let's so yeah. wait, wait, let's put yeah. a let's put a pin on that because we're running out of time and so obviously yeah. we need a part two. Um so right. I just I just wanna wrap up. I wanna give you each one minute to kind of summarize this conversation because we 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 barely scratched the surface today, so we gotta keep it going. But what are your biggest takeaways from your experiences and what message do you want the audience to leave with from this conversation? Go ahead, Nikki. For me, wake up. Wake mm. up, get educated on what's going on in our schools. Do not think it doesn't affect your child. It does. Your child is in that school. Your child is seeing things, hearing things that we never hear, heard, or experienced. So get involved on behalf of your child and all the kids. This has to be a movement that we all work together. And we have to take control now because it is an avalanche at this point. It is completely out of control. And we have to save our babies. Our babies are dying. And that is appalling and you can no longer ignore it you can't just turn off the tv or flip the newspaper like oh another kid died oh well what's the weather like tomorrow it is not okay we have to get involved we have to start participating at our school board meetings at our county and city meetings and with our legislators we have to get involved to say something must be done now action has to be taken now Right. Right. So my mine is is that I'm never gonna let nobody create a narrative about me. Okay. And I'm not about to let anybody and nobody else should let anybody create a narrative for our children. So by any means necessary, we need to protect their history, who they are, their identity, and they need to know. And we need to teach our children how to effectively defend themselves and their own identity and and, and not let nobody paint a defiant, disruptive, disobedient narrative uh, about our children, because that is a process of criminalization. And our kids are created to be more than what the system says that they are. They they go in one way and they come out a whole nother way that they were never intended to be. And so it is up to us to make sure that that narrative is actual, factual, and true and not allow the system to continue to perpetuate discrimination uh, or narratives that, that lead to prison, that lead to criminalization over our children because that affects them for life. And there's a, a process where you can't come back from that trauma because a kid internalizes way more than what they can externalize. So it is up to us. And if you know a child And I'm tired of people saying, well, the parents, well, don't wait for the parents. You go lock arms with that kid and let that kid know that they are loved, that they are cared about, that you are that one person that is going to invest in them. Don't cancel nobody. We're quick to cancel people and say, oh, forget them. They did X, Y, Z. But you don't know the history behind that. And so we have to be willing to lock arms and invest in our people, in our youth, and never give up on them like that young man that's driving the truck right now. We cannot give up. We cannot give up as they develop, as they grow. We need to be willing to be that one person to invest in them and say, I got you. No matter what happens, no matter what people say about you, no matter what kind of picture they paint, this is who you are. And I'm going to see this all the way through. And so I say, I'm not trying to die doing this, but I'm going to do this until the day that I die. And I I hope everybody else got that mentality because these kids are worth it. And I'm going to touch as many as I can and as many parents as I can and as many community leaders as I can to let them know this is the work right here. The system ain't going to change, but we got to change. 
Exactly. That's, that's yes. a word. That's a word. Everything. <laughs> I just want to, as always, echo everything that that I that my guests said. Nadine and Christina was so fantastic. Um, you know, I mean, when we think about trying to, you know, predict who our youth will be by their their younger years or their past, we can't do that. Look at Malcolm X. You know, Malcolm X was a thug and then he turned out to be one of pro, one of the most prolific leaders of our community. So as 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 Nadine said and as Christina said, our communities are under assault. Our youth are under assault. And it's up to us to protect them because this world, this country is trying to destroy our future generations, our young people. So y'all, like I said, we we definitely have the part two. We just barely scratched the surface today. So y'all be on the lookout for that conversation. Christina and Nadine, thank y'all so much for coming on today. Thank Clap you. it up for yourselves for the thank conversation. You. Thank y'all for being survivors. Thank y'all for being fighters. Thank y'all for being advocates. I really do appreciate y'all. Thank you. Anytime. We appreciate you. All right, y'all, we about Thank to peace you. out. Y'all stay safe. Um, protect y'all, <laughs> protect yourselves from that Rona. Make sure you get whatever yeah. food and supplies you need. Um, hey, and enjoy life as much as you can during this um, pandemic. All right, y'all, people voice yeah. out. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Dear sister got me twisted up in prison. I'm mission. Crying, looking at my nieces and my nephews, bitch. They say don't let this cool world get you. Kind of suspicious, swear one day you might leave me for somebody that's rich. Twist the cap off the bottle. I take a sip and see tomorrow. Gotta make it if I have to beg a bottle. Beating love, let us late night. Lock down and quiet. Your brothers don't proceed, they mail.